Greetings, and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Falconer and Nicholas Gardiakos with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. We are joined today by Stephanie K. Wheeler, Associate Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies. Dr. Wheeler's research interests include cultural rhetoric, disability studies, rhetoric of eugenics, and rhetoric of pop culture. In spring of 2021, she taught an upper-level undergraduate course, Rhetoric in Pop Culture, with the course built around the consideration of mother monster herself, Lady Gaga. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Wheeler. Thank you for having me. We're excited to have a little conversation about mother monster. That's right. Lady Gaga herself. Lady Gaga, yes. So for those who are unaware or maybe new to the conversation about rhetoric, rhetoric can seem like a highbrow and formal area of study. You know, it kind of calls to mind the ideas of arguments, either, you know, political or law. So why is pop culture a practical tool for the application of rhetorical consideration? Well, I think because of both rhetorics and pop culture is ubiquity. Um, I think that it's a um, an easy place to locate the way that things come together to mean something. And so um, in particular with, with Lady Gaga, for instance, um, you have a lot of visual elements that you can see come together and create a larger whole, something bigger than, you know, the... Um, the, the separate parts, the individual parts. And to me, that's how I, I understand rhetoric. It's a sort of coming together of a lot of disparate elements to create something that means something, something that, um, that, that you know, people act in response to, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, rhetoric is, um, you know, generally tied to uh, uh, arguments and persuasion and that sort of thing, but it's also a, a mode of communication. It's a, it's a way of um, making people understand something. And I think that pop culture, that's its purpose, is to communicate something, whether it be for laughs, um, for, you know, sharing, you know, cultural heritage, heritages, um, that sort of thing. And so I think that it is, it lends itself well because we all interact with it and um, you know, it's all, you know, man-made it's touched by humans and anything that is touched by a human has rhetoric. That is profound. And of course, good for us as we work in department of writing and rhetoric here at UCF. Um, So the big question then being why Lady Gaga Well, um, I have been a fan of hers for a while. Um, When I was in graduate school, um, I decided to go to see the Monster Ball on a whim. And of course, the Monster Ball was the tour that she did for the fame and the fame monster. Um, So this is like bad romance era. 
and um, we got the cheap seats and, you know, I listened to the album to, to familiarize myself with the music, but we just went to have a good time. And I was just so taken with the thoughtfulness that went into her performances and the ways in which I experienced the, the music differently because she was performing it. That's not unique to her. But what I felt was unique was this attention to the ways that music and performance and, and art and even down to things like colors or the kinds of materials she used for the, the, um, the stage set, how that all felt so intentional with the purpose of being inclusive. And I know that that sounds odd, um, but I'll give you an example. There's a moment in the monster ball um, that she makes a phone call and it's right before, you know, telephone and the um, she calls a fan in the audience. And so the fan that she happened to call was in a wheelchair and um, this person was way up high in the wheelchair section. And so if you're familiar, if you've ever gone to an event with somebody who is, um, you know, um, has any kind of mobility impairments, you know that you kind of get pushed to the back and in the corner. And so the, um, the spotlight goes on the, on the woman who is in the wheelchair, but you can't really see too well. Um, and so um, Gaga says, get out here. I want to see your beautiful face. And the woman said, I'm too afraid to bring my chair too forward because it's so high up and it's so steep. I mean, this is in a, a basketball arena. And um, Gaga said, no, no, not today. No, we are, she does this spiel in the beginning that she says, you know, like we're, we may be called freaks outside of this um, arena, but tonight we're locking ourselves in and the people outside, they are the ones who are the freaks. Tonight, we are just going to celebrate everything about ourselves. And so what she said, what Gaga said in response to this was she told all of the people who were sitting in the front who didn't pay for their tickets. So, you know, like the, the hoity-toity, they know people kind of thing. And she told them to get out and she brought the entire wheelchair section down on the floor. And um, she says, I'm going to take care of you. If you came here to see me, I'm not going to let something like, you know, a barrier keep you from seeing me. And, and she didn't say it like that. She said it in her Gaga way. And I was just so struck with that kind of awareness of the different ways that spaces can be disabling. That's not, that's not really common for people who haven't grown up with or have somebody in their lives with a disability. And knowing that it wasn't just a matter of, I think most people would have said, you know, it's okay. You don't have to move your chair forward. I can talk to you like this. But for Gaga to recognize that it was impeding the experience, um, I think that's what it was that was unique is, is her attention to the experience of not just watching, but feeling like you're a part of it. Um, and when you're a part of it to feel like you belong, that's it, it, 
the first words that came to my mind when I saw this, I was like, this is universal design. I mean, it wasn't, but <laughs> it was a, um, it was a, it was like a universal design for arguments, if that makes sense. Like, like she was attentive to all of the things. And when she didn't understand or when she didn't recognize something that was being a barrier serving as a barrier, she went at it. And, um, it, it was so emotional, like looking down and seeing all these wheelchair users, um, on the floor. Cause again, I'm in the cheap seats looking down and you know, at the monster ball, if you're not familiar, um, it's a story. And so the story is she's going from New York city and she's trying to get to the monster ball. And it's like a, like a, um, um, a wizard of Oz kind of thing. And, um, she keeps saying throughout the, the night, you know, the monster ball is a place where we can be free. And at the very end, of course, she gets to the monster ball and I wish I could find video of this, <laughs> but like, they, um, the, the, the set sort of transforms and I noticed there's ramps where there were stairs. Like who is thinking of that? Who isn't, you know, a part of the community or, you know, again, you live with somebody who, who, who has to always look for the ramp. And I just thought it was so powerful. And I've never heard her talk specifically about disability activism or justice. And um, it just was such a really powerful example for me that um, you can be an ally, but you don't, you don't have to go to the, the, um, the protests and the marches and all of that. Like you can be an ally in small ways like that transformed me that just that small attention to detail transformed me and you don't have to be you know I don't know I'm trying to think of a you know Doris um, Huerta like you don't have to do that to change somebody's life and um, just that intentional use and the intentional ways that she was thinking about an experience um, just struck me and I went back and I, I just saw her work with new eyes. And I realized that these songs that I thought were silly about like losing your shirt in a club, actually no, like when you look, like when you find the patterns of her work, there are patterns and they all point to the same thing. And I just think that that's just remarkable that she can use so many, it's like a multimodal I don't even know how to say it. It's it's she's theorizing in a way that that spoke to me. And again, I, I don't mean to suggest that that's, you know, unique to Gaga. I think um, most performers do um, do a bit of theorizing, but I think it's easier to see with Gaga. She was all I mean, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, since you're the expert on on her, her royal highness Gaga. Um, you know, she's so outwardly always a champion for those who seem to be in marginalized spaces, which I always equated, though, to her, um, you know, her statements about LGBT, LGBTQ plus communities. And, um, you know, you have to wonder if once you open your eyes to these these. Um, these barriers, like you talked about, you know, that she had realized the physical barriers and incorporated that into her performance, that 
it just makes you more aware in general of the types of barriers uh, that everyone, you know, who's marginalized in some way faces. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another really interesting and useful point um, with Gaga, especially when you're teaching like rhetoric of pop culture, it's so easy to fall into these kind of parasocial relationships with pop culture superstars, you know, mm. um, and it's so easy to put them on a pedestal and turn them into an avatar um, and become blinded, you know, like anything they do is perfect. And I think the thing that I really appreciate Gaga is that she's not always perfect. Sometimes she's done some things that um, aren't cool <laughs> and um, it, it serves as a site to be like, you can admire somebody for the work that they do. This is how you lovingly critique them. And, and when you really admire somebody, you, you should be critiquing them. And that is actually um, the example I use when I'm teaching um, Plato's Phaedrus. Like Plato talks about how, you know, when, when you're out there doing the rhetoric, you know, you need a mentor, but you need a mentor that you're not blinded by, like everything they do is perfect. You need to use your critical thinking skills when you're engaging in kind of arguments and ideas that you are really sort of, um, I don't know, uh, besotted with, you know, um, you have to be able to critique and, and find those, um, those holes in the argument. And I think Gaga, I mean, anybody who gets me talking about Gaga knows how much I admire her and, and how much I just love talking about her. Uh, but it is also important to remember that she's a person and people make mistakes. And um, and again, this isn't unique to her, but she's also really open to being told she made a mistake and really open about talking about, yeah, maybe that wasn't that wasn't the best thing. This is what I was trying to do. But I recognize that this might have um, or this has hurt people. And I'm going to I'm going to do better on that. And um yeah, I think that that's such a valuable and rare kind of thing, especially when you're in the position where you could just blow it off. I remember when she said the R word and it broke my heart. Um, but then she did an interview afterwards talking about like, look, growing up where I did, that's that's what you said. And that that's, doesn't mean that that's OK. And I'm going to think about that. And she I, to my knowledge, she hasn't said that word publicly again. Um and so yeah, I don't remember where I was going with that, but I think that it's a, a really useful place to um, really engage, especially in this, this world of information that we live in, where um, it's so much easier to just take the word of the person writing the headline and take it for truth um, and not read the rest of the article and interrogate it. You know what I mean? Um, and we all have our pop culture icons. I think it's a good place. It's a it's a, a, a smart place to begin thinking about how to do that constructively. Yeah, I mean, well, cancel culture is so prevalent right now that there is there's little place for redemption. Um, you know, it's one yeah. thing to be canceled. It's another thing to ever make it back. And who decides? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I don't want to get too much off topic. I, that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. Not even an episode. Not it's even, a whole yeah, other that, podcast. that's a whole other series. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about 
what you mean by the rhetorical decisions she makes with her meat dress? Oh, the rhetorical decisions of her meat dress. Yes. Well, um, one thing that my students and I talked about in, um, in this particular class, we were um, reading about the, 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 uh, the different ways that you have, oh, how do I say this? Um, different versions of reality, if that makes sense. And so um, we had been talking about what it means to be real, what it means to be a human, right? And so we had um, read a, uh, um, a primer on the cyborg manifesto. Um, and then we read a critique of the cyborg manifesto. We're basically the thing that we were trying to, to pull out is what makes a person a person? Um, what, what elements of a person's body gives them the, the right to be treated as a human, right? And so um, as we were, were talking about this, um, so the meat dress, we, we did a, a whole day on um, the meat dress. And so there's a couple of things happening there. First of all, um, Gaga always, especially early on, would wear these outfits that were just wild. I don't have to, I don't have to explain that. Um, but I remember there was one particular instance. Um, MTV asked her, "Why are you wearing this dress? Like it makes you look like you're shaped like a cupcake." And I remember she said, "Well, what if I am shaped like a cupcake? Does that mean then that you can you can laugh at me? But because you know it's fake." You, it's not funny. Like, tell me more. <laughs> why, why would you treat me differently if I was shaped differently? Um, and so, you know, we, we were going to expect that she was going to wear something sort of outrageous. And so she comes and she wears this meat dress. It's straight up meat. And um, there were a couple of arguments that she made with that. I mean, like literally the first one, she says, well, it is, um, why is it that people are on the red carpet wearing leather and nobody says anything like you have set the conditions of what is normal um, and what is normal is wearing um, animals like there's fur, there's there's leather. Um, why is meat? Why is flesh different? You didn't say I couldn't do that. I'm well within the boundaries of what you think is normal. And so what she's doing is pointing to the fact that what we think is normal is so contextual. And it's so, I mean, it's the rhetorical situation she gave us there. Like she followed all of the things that you would expect. And then just one thing, she didn't do the thing with, um, or they didn't do the thing with Aristotle and define your terms. They didn't define what animal meant. And so she called him out on it. Um, but the other argument and the one that, that most people associate with the meat dress is the, is a critique of the don't ask, don't tell. And so this is, this goes back to the cyborg stuff and the, um, you know, what makes a human, her argument was you send people in the military to risk their lives and you look at them like they're numbers, like they're just a piece of meat and, you have people who have lived experiences, real experiences that shape how they're going to act when they're in the military. And this, this don't ask, don't tell is 
erasing that. And, you know, if when it comes down to it, and, and I think she said this on Ellen, she's like, when it comes down to it, like, this is what we all look like underneath. It's just flesh. Like, like why, why do we continue to, to judge based on the outward stuff? Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so the fact that not only is she wearing meat, but I think it's interesting the kind of meat that she's wearing and the kind of cuts of meat that she's wearing. Um, I think the fact that she didn't walk on the red carpet with it, she changed after her performance and then went up and, and received an award and then called attention to it with Cher when she asked Cher to hold her purse. And she's like, I never thought I'd be asking Cher to hold my meat purse. Um, like she makes it in such a way that you can't look away and you can't ignore it. And she wants that. She wants you to feel so uncomfortable so that you can do the Foucault thing and, and do your enthymemes and walk backwards and say, okay, what are the missing premises to this conclusion? Like if you're allowed to wear meat, Gaga's wearing, or if you're allowed to wear animals, Gaga's wearing meat, meat is an animal. Like what, what's the missing premise here? And I think that the fact that she did that intentionally with the purpose of having somebody act upon it. I think that's the big difference is that anybody can wear something outrageous, but I think the rhetorical power of Gaga's outfits in particular is that she wants you, it's, it's a really good example of Kenneth Burke's consubstantiality. We identify together, we identify with Gaga that wearing meat is weird because she'll be the first person to tell you. But that moment of identification, you have to act, you have to do something with it. Now that we've identified with one another, do something with it. And I think that that's the power of Gaga is that when you pay attention, she's asking you to do something with um, the weird feelings that you're feeling. So I'm curious, how do you see some of your students wrestling with these you know, questions? Because I think one of the great things about Lady Gaga as an artist is, you know, even if she doesn't have the answer, she's constantly asking the questions, like constantly challenging audiences, you know, in terms of what they think about her, what they think about, you know, what art is, you know, what they think about what messages are. So I'm curious, using this in a class, you know, do you, are you, you know, sometimes surprised by the reads that students have or, or the reactions that they have? Um, you know, what's that like using using this as a as, you know, a basis for, you know, talking about rhetorical material in a class? Yeah, it's funny because when I first started using Gaga in class, this was like 2010. And this was before this. was I was able to open up conversations in class with. All right. Everybody has an opinion about Lady Gaga. And it's one of two things. You love her or you hate her. Like you think she's weird and you don't want to talk about it. And honestly, teaching in College Station, Texas, most of it fell in the latter. She's weird. She's um, a, a incarnation of just everything that's wrong with the world. <laughs> and so that gave me a really generative place to start conversations because then I would say, like I would try to, to, to speak you know, um, what Gaga's outfits and performances were saying, giving voice and saying, what makes you uncomfortable? And that was a really great exercise for 
like it could last an entire class. Like let's talk about and make a list of the things that make you uncomfortable. Now let's understand why it makes you uncomfortable. And um, early I would, I would use it to teach enthymemes um, because the, the danger of enthymemes, I mean, Foucault made his whole career off of undoing, you know, enthymemes. Um, so to teach them to walk back and say, okay, what's your premise here? Like, why is this weird? And it made them uncomfortable because they realized that they were putting just arbitrary rules on her. And, and I would tell them it's okay that you're uncomfortable. Um, I'm not asking you to become a little monster. I am asking you though, to engage with the things that make you uncomfortable because discomfort is where things happen. Um, rhetoric can't happen if everybody agrees with everything. And that's the cool thing about rhetoric is that disagreements are the things that make meaning happen. Um, and so that worked well then, but then by the time I, I got to teach this class last, um, spring, um, everybody was down with Gaga. Everybody was like, okay, okay. But they also were like, how are you going to get a whole class out of teaching her? Um, that seems bizarre. And I will say that um, I had a really great group of students who went into it with an open mind. That's the only thing I ask. And um, I made it clear that it's not necessarily a class about Gaga. I think on my syllabus, I have a place where I talk about this, where like, this is a class where I'm trying to help you become better thinkers and, and better communicators and, and um, you know, just critics, you know, um, think about what comes on your, your phone screens and your computer screens. Um, and before you blow somebody off, think about the different ways that we make meaning. And I think one of the things that really struck a chord with them is the fact that I base so much of the class in disability rhetoric. And disability rhetoric is one of those things that you bring it up and every student wants to tell a story about a, a person with disabilities they knew. Um, which is great because it's the way that you get them talking about a conversation or talking within a conversation. Um, and so I will say that at the beginning, I had a couple of students who were very, um, I don't want to say opposed, but very much like this is embarrassing. I had one student in particular say that um, he had to do his work for my course outside of his dorm room because he didn't want his roommates to, to hear him listening to Lady Gaga. But by the end, he, my God, he came around to the point where he did a project where he said, I am a little monster. Like, I don't understand how I missed this. Um, it's going to make me kind of go back and re-examine everything that I thought that I liked and everything that I thought I knew about um, music and Gaga. And he did this really great project. He was a big David Bowie fan. And he created this huge playlist where it was Bowie and Gaga talking to one another. And it was so cool. Um, and I, another student who was definitely like, I do not like Gaga. At the end, he was still like, I don't like her, but I appreciate her. And I appreciate the ways that she's opening up spaces for us not to, to feel weird about critically analyzing pop music or fashion or anything like this, which again, she's not the only one and not certainly not the first one to do this, but for them, it was the first time they encountered. And so um, it, the response has been great. Um, and, and it's easy to get them to talk 
And so that's half the battle. I don't know about either of you, but for me, that's the magic of teaching anything to do with rhetorical analysis in class is getting students to have that first moment where they realize they can look at something that seems maybe inconsequential to them at first glance. And -hmm. when they start picking apart and pulling those layers back and seeing how much you can critique um, you know, not to be critical, but to look at the the deeper meanings that is happening. Um, one of my favorite people to look at for that in terms of social media is Kim Kardashian, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. she's so unabashedly about a certain thing that yeah. um, you can really, when you start to look at every single, you know, Instagram post, uh, it becomes overwhelmingly clear, like, okay, this is what's happening here. And she's someone that I think a lot of people love to either love or hate, just like, Uh, Lady Gaga. I'm not saying that I love her or I hate her, but as one of those um, vehicles, because she's so widely known and Mm -hmm. people, you know, whether whatever their opinion is of her, if you say the name, they know who she is and they have an idea about her that you can jump right in and say, okay, so let's look at these things and see what's happening here. But that's that's the magic. I I love that. part. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting, too, especially with Lady Gaga. I mean, you know, context change right from from when you first, you know, introduce this as a yeah. as a subject matter in class you know you said 20 2010 is that right mm-hmm. yeah uh you know uh and so all those ecologies are different all those you know uh, associations are different so i you know i think it's fascinating to see what students you know uh pick up on now or what they connect it to you know because all of that stuff you know even though she may not be you know for for at least for music, you know, more recently, you know, in, in, in the news or in the, in the feeds or, or in the, you know, uh, in the conversation, I think when you go back and, and you kind of discover that, right. You know, I think those connections, you know, can still be made to, you know, conversations going on today, even though, you know, at given the, the time that that art was made or that statement was made or, or, you know, uh, uh that, version of Lady Gaga was was happening, you know, uh, I, I think that's really great. And I think she's she's just constantly trying to to reinvent that. But, you know, as time goes on, it's going to be really interesting to see, especially with with students that are, you know, discovering her, thinking about the context of when that was and then thinking about how that applies to now. You know, the the thing that I find interesting, too, is that she's so consistent so she has reinvented herself, but she's consistent throughout. So, for example, look at the eyewear that she wore during the fame era um, when she first came out. Um, her eyewear, her use of eyewear throughout in her entire career is a commentary on how we see the world or how she sees us, how we see her. Like it's a commentary about looking and, and staring. And to me, that is a um, uh, the foundation of understanding Gaga's work. She's always thinking about what it means to be looked at and what it means to look and um, where is agency fall in that. And so for consistency, like you can trace the pattern that from the fame through Chromatica um, or even, you know, um, she's, she did um, the, her second album with um, Tony Bennett. Um, when she wears eyewear, she, the pattern is that she's making a commentary about how you see the world. It's the Burkean, 
you know, um, um, what is it called? The terministic screens is what she's kind of showing us. Um, and like that consistency is so intentional and I can always look back and I can always know that if she's talking about, um, uh, so like in Just Dance, she, she says, um, our blueprint is symphonic. When she talks about things like blueprints or plans or, or schematics or anything like that, I always know no matter what era we're in, she's talking about our bodies. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's so cool to be able to look back and see, you know, the development over the years, not just our reaction to her, but her reaction to us as well. Yeah, I mean, looking at the meat dress, honestly, for me, just revisiting it, I immediately assumed it was commentary on the idea of public personalities and being consumed. You know, that idea of consumption, yeah. especially women's bodies, you know, that you're out there to put on something that makes you want to be consumed. You're on the red carpet. Mm -hmm. You're you're promoting this idea of of like a very primal consumption. And that's yeah. I mean, I think that's looking at it through 2021 eyes as opposed to. I don't remember what year she wore it originally. Yeah, it's it, consumption is a, another theme throughout um, her work. So I love that read of it. Um, you know, she has a song called Sour Candy on this um, latest album. Um, and it's about like, I'm sour candy, like consume me and see what happens, <laughs> you know. Um, but even to the fame, like um, she she positions herself as somebody to be consumed and um, again, like those patterns, they're everywhere. They are indeed. So I'm curious, in the, in the context of the class, you know, I was looking at um, uh, the, the, the website for your, for your course, and it had some of those, you know, student posts in there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like, you know, how those, uh, you know, and I, and I read through a, a few of them. And uh, it was really interesting to see not only the students kind of, you know, uh, negotiate with the ideas and the, the subjects, um, but I'm just curious how those are kind of framed within the class, um, you know, and, and, you know, how the students are kind of prompted to, to come up with those. Yeah, so um, I, I have them, so they function as um, an example of when you see something interesting, start engaging it, um, start thinking about it. And so there aren't any due dates outside of like, you just got to get all your stuff in by the end of um, the semester, but they had an activity booklet. And so um, what I did was um, create these prompts associated with um, points. And so you have to get so many points to get an A, so many points to get a B, it's up to you. No judgment. If you only want to see, get the C. Um, but um, so they were things. And so, I'm, you know, I'm looking at one like maybe a, a photo shoot that Gaga has done. And you're really interested in, in what she's doing there. That could be worth, you know, two points. Um, I, um, I offered up the, you know, like think about remixing. Um, what, what is the rhetorical context and how does it shift between an original song and a remix of the song? Um, particularly when she, um, performs the remix of the song or a different version of the song. Um, I had, uh, Gaga Poetics <laughs> and, um, I asked students to look at, um, 
you know, a, a three songs that seem that they notice a pattern happening thematically, um, sonically, whatever, and then engage that pattern. Um, and, you know, it, it, it went down to, you know, like her activism, you know, do you notice something about her, her activism, um, her, um, you know, I, I did a, a genius lyric analysis. Maybe you want to do an in-depth lyric analysis. Um, and then, you know, there's a, um, one on, on tracing. And so track a concept term or object across her, her, um, her catalog and, and sort of talk about that. So the point was that if something interesting came up in class that somebody was like, whoa, I didn't realize there was always a place in this activity booklet to engage that thought. The point was essentially for me to, to get them to honor those sort of like little light bulb, light bulb moments and um, get it down on paper as soon as it sort of came to sort of practice that, hey, there's always things happening, but when something like comes to light, um, get it down. Let me know what you think. And, um, and I tried to respond to, um, as many of them as I could, um, as they came up on the, the website and my mom, she followed it and she would read them all. And she would call me and say, well, these kids are so smart. Um, <laughs> and I'd say, you know, yeah, mom, yeah, they are. I'm, um, I love yeah, the approach to that because so often, I mean, even putting myself back into being the a position of student, it takes a little bit of of wrestling with some ideas before you can start to really apply them with some meaning. So the mm -hmm. idea that that this is this is open ended, you know, you have to do so many of them, but you have some time to really like mm -hmm. to wait for something that is impactful to you, so it's authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's true inquiry. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's student inquiry at the at the purest sense. Which, mm -hmm. I mean, I. I think we can all agree it makes more meaning, you know, um, but just mm -hmm, really quickly mm -hmm. to go back to um, the question initially about we mentioned the website for this particular course, you opted to create a website for both your syllabus and the activity book. Um, I know a lot of work went into it. Was there a particular reason, rationale behind that, uh, you know, just taking it from a regular paper syllabi to something more multimodal? Um, the originally it was just because I wanted the blog post. Like I wanted a place for the blog post to go. And frankly, I don't know enough about Canvas to know <laughs> how to make a blog post thing happen. It felt like it was just easier. Um, and as far as like it sort of serving as a repository, um, I have wanted to teach this class since 2010. I've been thinking about this class that long. And to get the, the chance to do it, um, I had no intentions of making it look, making this website look anything other than just a blog. Um, but, and it was funny because that semester I was teaching four sections, which typically I teach three or two sections. Um, and I was well past my limit, like overloaded. And I just could not stop working on it because I found comfort in it. And this is, sounds really, really cheesy, but I find comfort in her music. I find comfort in her work. I am not a fan of pop music and I do not understand why it works with Gaga, 
but really nobody else. Like it's, I hate my Spotify recommendations because I'll listen to Gaga and they think I want to listen to Katy Perry. Nothing wrong with Katy Perry. <laughs> it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I sort of found comfort in creating that and it, you know, it just came through me. It's, you know, um, and so, yeah. And I wanted it to look good and this is a really stupid reason, but I'm going to say it. Like I sent it to her. I was like, follow the schedule. Gaga. I'll send you reminders. I'll send you links. If you want to join, um, never, never, uh, got to be, uh, you know, um, blessed with her presence. <laughs> but like, I was like, if this is, if she's going to see this, it's going to be good. And she's, she's going to want to be, she's going to want to do an independent study. And I want to be prepared for that. Yeah. I <laughs> but think, it, you know, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it, it looks great. And I think the other thing that makes it kind of work, cause I was going to mention with the blog posts, the student posts, they're a good read. You know, I was yeah. just scrolling through them. You know, they, they weren't my students. I wasn't scoring them or grading them or anything like that. I was like, these, these are a good read. Cause the length is, is just about right. They really kind of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it, and it's, it was interesting to see them like, I'm sure they they had some examples or they read each other's or whatever, but there's this mm-hmm. like genre forming uh, uh, that's happening there in the post that mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. And I'm like, wow, these are all pretty consistent, even though they're written, yeah. you know, posts by different authors and even tackling different subjects or some are like close reads of lyrics and others mm-hmm. are, you know, photo shoots or, or magazine covers or whatever. They all seem really consistent to me. I'm like, this is impressive. This this seems, you know, like a real thing. And I think it's probably because one, it, it looks so legit, uh, you know, when you <laughs> when you put it together, and because of that context, right? It's not it's not in web courses where just yeah. just that sort of arena alone is very is closed, right? So sterile almost. It's a sterile sort of yeah. I think sometimes to, yeah. when students post in there, it's like, well, well, this is you know, just my teacher is going to read this and, you know, the obligatory two students that have to (laughs) respond to and have to read it too, you know. Um, But I think it it, kind of, it it changes when you, you know, when you create the site or create the blog and it it looks the way that it does. And it, you know, it looks like, you know, you, something that you would feel comfortable sending to Lady Gaga to say, hey, check this out. Look what I did. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, And then, also, they know I'm reading it and they know that I'm a fan. And so like they know that it's not too silly to go so deep into it that like they're like, oh, this is just I'm stretching it. But like they know that I'm going to be into that. Um, but then also I was very open with them and let them know my mom's reading this. And how well you do depends on you like she's going to know what kind of teacher I am. And so I really need you to show up for me. <laughs> and they would ask me, what did your mom think of this? And the other great thing about that is that you know, my mom didn't go to college. She barely finished high school. Um, my trick with academic writing has always been I send my mom a draft of something. And if she doesn't get it, then I need to go back and rewrite it because I want what I do to be accessible to everybody. And um, they had that in their mind, too. Like, I. I'm writing to a general audience who's not doing rhetoric, who's not an academic and who might not even be a Gaga fan, but is interested in interesting things. And so I think that helped a lot too. 
really empowering too when something lives in the world and not just mm-hmm. um you know living in the house of 1159 submit and pray as i like to call mm-hmm. it or the church of mm-hmm. we all pray there mm-hmm. sometimes we've all been known mm-hmm. to pray there oh yeah mm-hmm. um yeah and and giving them that first real glimpse into how um you know conversations take place in the world in academic environments but also in a lot of different arenas, you know, there there is transfer of skill. It's not just something we're doing obligatory to to post reply, but that there mm-hmm. is, you know, the the global audience is real, and it's something they're going to be facing sooner rather than later as they are yeah. in their upper level coursework. Um, yeah, and it's easy for them to to um in, integrate the things that they want to do. So I had a student who was a journalism major. And she did all of her posts on the Born This Way Foundation, and they read like journalistic, like hot takes, you know, mm-hmm. and she talked to me about that. And I said, do it like, like do it like I don't, you know, have any um, use this space to to, you know, hone your skills, but also use this space to to try something and fail. You know, um, one thing that I would always remind my students, Gaga says honor your vomit. <laughs> and she, she takes that metaphor pretty far, um, which is fine. But like the idea of like, honor the thing that you don't like about yourself, honor the thing that you think, Oh, I'm just going to get, just going to get this out because the papers do, I'm just going to do it. Honor that because that is important and that's essential. And I think that kind of took some of the pressure off. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's something that we, you know, talk about in all our classes in terms of the writing process, right? The, the, Mm. the process part of it, you know, and, and, you know, that's what I think, again, you know, Gaga's really into that as well. Like, you know, the, not only the, the arguments, the statements, but also just the, the process of, of, you know, realizing one idea, then, you know, moving on, realizing the next idea. And like, I think all the great artists kind of do that, right? They, you know, they're, they're able to sort of, you know, when they're done, you know, uh, uh, let it let it speak and let it be read and, and let it be argued about. And then, you know, they're they're moving on to the next yep. question or thing they want to explore. And that's and, really exciting. And also revision is something that I find um, really valuable in the writing classroom. And it's something that is so easy to find this theme in Gaga's work because so many of her demos are available online. Um, but a lot of um, the early, like uh, like poker face, for instance, um, it kind of started off as like a polka because she is a, she's trained classical piano. That is what she was most comfortable with. That's how she wrote her songs. And that's why her piano renderings of these songs are so beautiful because that's how they were written. They were not written to be pop songs. And so like thinking about genre, like what's appropriate for this genre. She started off as a hip hop artist and not a very good one. Um, And she recognized that. And she was like, this genre isn't speaking to me. I'm going to take a step back. And I just, I love that so much that you can find these piano versions of her just playing around. And all of a sudden you start to hear the melody of bad romance. And it doesn't sound like anything you would ever think. Um, and, and, you know, on her cheek to cheek tour, um, like she played the hits, 
but they were piano jazz standard versions and she can just go between them so easily and so effortlessly. And I tell students, yes, it's because she's talented, but also because she studied the genre. Like she knows that it's not going to translate to this particular audience. And so she goes back and she studies the genre. She's talked so much about how she is a student of pop and she can talk to you about Andy Warhol and, and David Bowie and, and explain like, this is what I'm picking up. This is what tends to work. And I'm following in that genre. And I, I think that that's so powerful that she can stay within a genre, but like change her approach. Like who she was with the fame monster is not who she was with art pop. And Joanne just threw everybody off because suddenly she's like country or something, but she's not like, it's still pop. And I, I think that that's just the coolest thing. She's definitely unabashedly herself, regardless mm-hmm. of what genre conventions. And, and that's, I think that's a slippery slope. You feel beholden to those conventions, you know, and she has managed to, to take it where she can, I don't want to say exploit them, but definitely utilize them to her advantage well, yeah. while still yeah. keeping that very uniquely, um, individual voice. Yeah. And the, the one thing that I, I like to cite a lot when I say cultural theorist, Stephanie Germanata asks us to think about what it means to be born this way. It doesn't mean you're born a certain person. Like nobody comes out who they are. What she's saying is that we are always in a state of becoming. We're always changing. We're born to change. Um, and it's such a, a wonderful um, way of understanding that, that, that she's not the Joanne Gaga. She's not the art pop Gaga. She's both and. She can be all of those things at once. And so can we. We can be all of these complicated things at once. It doesn't make us fake. It doesn't make us anything but real because we are made of all of these different things. And whatever you decide to lean into is is the persona you need for the chapter in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know I have one more question, but do you have a question as well, Nick? No. Okay. I have one more question for you because I know that we, uh, we've talked for a few minutes now and it's been wonderful, but, uh, just out of pure personal curiosity, what is your favorite, uh, Gaga? You can either do song or video due to rhetorical decisions that she makes. Ooh. I know it's like well, picking a, picking a favorite cat, favorite right? child. Oh yeah. my gosh. A favorite cat. Oh man. You're right. <laughs> the cats of Gaga. Um, so I have a soft spot for Alejandro. Um, I wrote a chapter of my dissertation on Alejandro on the video. And the thing that inspired me to make the little um, thing, the, the remix analysis um, came from there was a remix of Alejandro that came out and somebody took the music video and made it fit the remix. And I just, Oh my gosh. Um, But my go-to to to teach is um, bad romance because my work looks at disability and eugenics and like the, the ways that, you know, medicine creates what's normal and what's abnormal. And that's what she's doing in that video but there's so many. I mean, I I also want to give a shout out to you and I, where she talks 
um, well, she doesn't talk, but she's, she's asking us to think about the things that we do to our bodies to fit in and not just fit in culturally, um, but, um, to fit in like what the law says that we should be like, she's, she's a mermaid who wants to marry a human, but mermaid human marriage is illegal. So she changes her body and she goes through like a shock therapy to try and change herself. And all these versions of herself keep dying. And eventually she ends up just with prosthetics and the guy has left. And so I think that, oh, oh man. Um, oh, Gaga. Oh, Gaga. But I will say, if you haven't listened to Chromatica, I'm going to ask you do so because it is so theoretically on point. It is the, you know, art pop walked so that Chromatica could run. Wow. And um, yeah, really. I mean, I'm teaching um, GUI guy um, in um, my my graduate course on Monday to teach them how to read Derrida. You know, it's just so theoretically dense and accessible. And yeah, so I didn't answer your question because I gave you several, but I'm yeah. curious. And because this will air after your class, so we're not going to do any spoilers. Yeah. Talk to me yeah. a little bit about what you mean about the Derrida application to that song. Ooh. Well, um, it begins at the level of semiotics. How do semiotics work? You see the word G-U-I, but she is saying, she's not saying guy, the sound that comes out of her mouth. What she's saying is G-U-I. And so we're like, oh, a dude. No, she means it to mean girl underneath you. <laughs> and so um, the... Um, um, so just at that level of like phonology, um, something's happening there. But in the music video, she takes the binary of real and fiction and interrogates it to the point where she has the real housewives of something, something. Um, they're in there um, acting as like deities. So she's commenting on like, you guys are treating people, you know, and like Andy Cohen plays Zeus. You know, and so um, she's that. oh yeah, <laughs> and and so she's saying like these are people of reality TV. Is that real? You're treating them like that, but is is that real? Um, it, it's it's just so it's just every like there's there's like sets made of like or, or um, like props like um, food made of Legos, and so she's asking, is this real? Well, you can't eat it, but it doesn't make it any less real. Again, it goes back to undoing those binaries, saying, what if it's both and? And then that gets into the play of difference, right? Like, what is that? What are the plays that's happening? She's interrupting that. She's showing us what it looks like. It could mean all of these different things. And whatever you decide it means works for you. But just know, if I say guy, it doesn't mean automatically what everybody else thinks it means. So. Well, I know what I'm doing this weekend, watching uh, some Gaga videos. Well, you know what? Just, why don't you just stop into class? You know? There you go. Join. There you go. I'll Join. Open in. invitation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it's so much fun always talking about sharing something that someone is passionate about, which you obviously are. Um, I'm going to go ahead and testify that just that syllabus alone, and you can see the work that went into that website is a testimony to your passion and commitment. So thank you so much for sharing that passion with us today. Yeah. And thanks thank so you. much for being our first guest on the department podcast. Ooh. Yeah. Are you going to bring me back for the hundredth episode? 
Of course. Well, I'll put you, I'll pencil, I'll pencil you in. Yeah. Yeah. Pencil it in. Yeah. Our people will talk to your people. It'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks again. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.